Today's scripture comes from Ecclesiastes 3.16 to 4.3. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. And I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can, bring them, who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Again I look and I saw all the oppression that was taking, under the, taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. All, and I declared that the dead who, are already, who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you. Uh, Would you join me now in prayer? Father, we have now heard your word being publicly read, and we now eagerly wait for you to speak to us through the preaching of the word. Lord, we are so grateful that you are a God who is not silent, that you are a God who is not far off. You're a God who speaks. You're a God who is near. And Lord, we do believe that by your spirit, you are with us now. Lord, we are your people. We believe you have summoned each and every one of us by name, gathering us here at this place. Lord, we ask now that as we sit at the feet of Jesus, that you would banish whatever distracting thoughts, whatever anxieties, whatever struggles that weigh us down so that we could be fully receptive and fully attentive to your word today. Lord, protect us from falling into temptation. Protect us from the whispering accusations of Satan or the wandering mind to the worries of this world. We pray that you would help us to stay focused and have teachable hearts and minds so that our souls would be enlivened in such a way that we would live the lives that you've called us to live, that we would be the people you call us to be, and that we would live with the hope you call us to have before a world that is a desperate need of that very hope. Oh, Lord, would you now bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you for joining us on this Lord's Day as we worship our God together. If this is your first time here at NCF, or maybe this is your first time at NCF in quite a while, we're currently in a sermon series through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And I've entitled this series, Reality Used to Be a Friend of Mine. Now you hear that title and you're a little bit thrown off. You're a little bit unsettled because that that, that phrase, that title for a sermon series just sounds a little weird. It sounds odd. Maybe I dare to say it sounds a little appropriate, inappropriate because it kind of conveys something dark, something unsettling, kind of a depressive vibe, not the kinds of things that you would expect to feel when you come into a church. No, no, no. 
When you come to church, you expect to hear inspiring messages of hope, right? You come to be encouraged. You come to be motivated to do good things. You don't come to hear nitty-gritty, dark things that you could easily watch when you turn on the evening news. This is why, by the way, many Christians who don't really read the Bible much, why they're incredibly shocked when they read the book of Ecclesiastes for the first time because it does not read like any Bible that's supposedly inspired by the book, excuse me, by the Spirit of God. Most of us who've never read the book of Ecclesiastes are utterly blown away at how dark, how hardcore it displays the real world to where it really shatters that naive view that so many people have about the Bible, namely that it's a book of silly myths to where it's so disconnected from reality. Oh, no. When you read this book, when you pick it up for the first time and you read it cover to cover, you don't come away from thinking, oh, what a wonderful God, what a pleasant world that we live in. Absolutely not. When you read through the book of Ezekiel, you come away and you go, meaningless, meaningless vanity. This reality stinks. This life sucks. Reality is no friend of mine, which therefore begs the question, pastor, why are we studying this book? Why are we spending our whole summer months looking at a book that's so dark and so sinister and so cynical to where it makes us just want to go, <sighs> the answer? Because the God of the Bible wants to give you genuine hope, real hope, robust hope, not that kind of silly hope that you hear, you know, being spoken in platitudes on Christian radio, not that kind of cheesy, superficial hope that you read in those Christian cars that you find in the bookstore. No, God wants to give us real hope dense, essential hope, hope that can withstand no matter what suffering, no matter what darkness, no matter what perversity that you go through in life. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, you cannot engage this hope until you're first willing to engage how dark, how perverted, how scary, how mean and cruel this world can be. And so, as we continue our series through this book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the author of this book, is going to be our guide as he helps us engage a topic that is so dark, so sinister, so painful that many of us would like to avoid it at all costs. And what is this topic? It is the topic of unjust suffering. The topic of unjust suffering. There are many different kinds of suffering in this world, many different kinds of reasons why people suffer in this world. Some people suffer in this world because they're just stupid. Some people suffer because they're trying to achieve some great thing that requires blood, sweat, and tears. Other people suffer because they are pursuing or protecting love. But Solomon is not going to be talking about any of those appropriate kinds of sufferings that we can tolerate. No. Solomon is going for the jugular because he is going to address a kind of suffering that many of us do not want to face. And that is unjust suffering, earth-shattering suffering, faith-shattering suffering, unjust suffering. So for those of you who are taking notes today, three things I'd like to share with you this morning. Number one, unjust suffering makes God confusing. Unjust suffering makes God confusing. Number two, unjust suffering makes death confusing. And finally, Jesus makes sense of everything. Unjust suffering makes God confusing. Unjust suffering makes death confusing. And finally, Jesus makes everything, or excuse me, Jesus makes sense of everything. Okay? Let's jump right in. First, unjust suffering makes God confusing. If someone said to you the following statement, what would you think of this person? You know what? I think people at their core are good people. And yet, I also believe people are born inherently evil. 
If someone said that to you with a straight face, what would you think of that person? You probably think they're a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, right? You probably think that they're off, that they're really, really confused. I mean, how can you say that you believe one thing and yet also believe in the direct opposite, right? How can you affirm these two contradicting ideas? That's like you saying to me, you know what, Pastor? I firmly do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and yet I also firmly believe that I'm a devout Christian. What? How can you hold these two opposing ideas? That kind of thinking is utterly confused. But you know who else is utterly confused? Solomon, the person writing this passage. Because if you look at verses 17, 18, and 19, he gives two directly contradicting views of God that he both holds to be true. Let me show you what I mean. Let's go back and read verse 17 again, and it reads this. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Circle that phrase at the end of verse 17 that says there is a time for every matter and for every work. That phrase basically means there is a time coming where God is going to judge the good and the wicked. Old Testament scholar by the name of Tremper Longman describes it this way, quote, This phrase alludes to the time of fair judgment. So, with that in mind, what is Solomon really saying here in verse 17? Or if I could put it in more layman's terms, he's saying this. I believe, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked to where he will bless the righteous and he will punish the wicked. Or if I could put it this way, God's going to make sure that all good things happen to good people and all bad things happen to bad people. Solomon has just revealed to us in verse 17 that he buys into this thing known as Santa Claus theology. Santa Claus theology. Yeah, Santa Claus theology. What in the world is Santa Claus theology, Pastor John? You know, every Christmas, we teach our kids this disgusting song that I hate so much. Do you recognize it? You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. Why am I singing like this? I have no idea. He's making a list, checking it twice. I can't even stop. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So what? Be good for goodness sake. What does this song teach our children? It teaches the exact same idea that Solomon believes here in verse 17. Good things only happen to good people and bad things only happen to bad people. Except for Solomon, it's not Santa who makes sure these things happen. No, it's God. This is his first belief about God. Good things always happen to good people. Bad things always happen to bad people. But then listen to what he says in his very next breath in verses 18 to 19. Read it again with me. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but brute beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so does the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. What in the world is Solomon saying here? Well, he clarifies what he says in the second half of verse 18. Read it one more time. God is testing them, that is, God is teaching mankind, that they, man, may see that they themselves are but beasts. Or as another translation puts it, that mankind can know that man is like the animals. Solomon? Solomon? Solomon, what are you talking about? What do you mean mankind are like the animals? What do you mean that human society, that mankind, that we are like beasts? What are you talking about? 
he clarifies verse 19. What does he say? As one dies, so does the other. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you saw an animal die this way? He's lying on a nice, soft, cushiony bed. He's surrounded by all of his animal family members and animal family friends. And he peacefully sleeps his death away. You ever watch that Discovery Channel documentary of, of animals dying a decent death? No. Because animals in the wild, they don't die like that. They die, they die vicious death, right? Animals constantly have to face predators wanting to kill them. They have to deal with the fact that predators want to kill and devour their young ones right in front of them. They have to deal with the fact that if an animal member of the family is hurt and weak, they have to leave them behind to fend for themselves. And if animals can avoid all these trappings, they have to face sometimes, in most cases, the bitterness of dying a slow death of starvation because there's just not enough food. Animals do not live a long, abundant life to where they peacefully die in their sleeps. Far from it. Animals die in the context of the strong, eating the weak, survival of the fittest, where in most cases it's always the young and the wounded who die first, and they die a cruel, vicious death. So putting all this together, what is Solomon saying about God here? He's saying God seems to care if man dies like animals die in the wild. That's what he's saying. Just like it seems God doesn't care when a cougar devours a little cute little bud bunny rabbit in front of its mom, so also it seems God doesn't care if a little child is kidnapped to be devoured by a sexual predator. Just like it seems God doesn't care when a silverback gorilla beats to death a young male from jealous rage, so also God doesn't seem to care when a young, quiet 16-year-old girl is ganged up and brutally beaten to death in a bathroom. Why? Because the gang leader thinks, thinks, that she likes the same boy that she does. Solomon is saying the exact opposite in verse 18 and 19 to what he just said in verse 17. He starts off by saying, I believe God is just, that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, but then in the next breath he says, wait, no. Sometimes that's not true. Sometimes the way I see the world this world that apparently God is sovereign over. I see situations where people die like they're animals out in the wild, mercilessly, cold, cruel. Solomon, how did you get this confused about God? What happened to you, Solomon? What is the result of all this to where you now are so unsure about this God that you thought you were so sure of? Verse 16, read it with me. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, just to give you a better picture, literally, of what he is talking about here, I'm going to show you two images that capture fully what his words are saying. Can we have the first picture up, please? This image powerfully captures what Solomon is saying here when he writes, in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. Let's go to the next picture. Pastors on the prowl. Pastors who are caught because they sexually assaulted young children. This picture captures exactly what Solomon writes when he says, in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Solomon has just observed that in this world, it's not good things always happening to good people or bad things always happening to bad people. No, he witnesses bad people getting good things like getting public respect, public recognition as an authority like a thug becoming a cop. Or he sometimes sees situations where people who don't deserve to suffer unjustly suffer unjustly all the time like when children are being sexually molested by quote-unquote pastors. 
And as a result of witnessing these unjust sufferings going on in the world, he is unsettled. He is confused. He doesn't know what to make of God. God who initially he thought was good, loving, and just, now all of a sudden he's unsure. All of a sudden he can't really put his chips all in that basket into saying, yes, I know in my heart of hearts God is always good, always just, always loving. And friends, when you witness unjust suffering, you will suffer that same confusion as well. It doesn't matter if you are the most devout follower of God. It doesn't matter if you grew up going to church. It doesn't matter if you center your lives on God and dedicated your life to God forever and ever. Because if someone like Solomon, man, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture itself, endowed with wisdom, wisdom that far exceeds any one of us here in this room, if a man like that can be confused about God, you better believe every single one of us, including myself, can be utterly confused, utterly unsettled about God in the context of unjust suffering to where at best you will be dubious towards him or at worst you will stop believing in him. Now, if that wasn't discouraging enough, I'm sorry, it gets a little worse. Because Solomon goes on to tell us that not only does unjust suffering confuse us about God, but unjust suffering confuses us about something else that is just as serious. And to explain my next point, unjust suffering makes death confusing. Let's read verse 19 to 21 of chapter 3 and skip down to verse 2 of chapter 4, and it reads this. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so does the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down in the earth. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. Solomon has now revealed to us another point of confusion for him. He's not only confused about God, but he's also confused about death. Let me show you. In verses 19 to 21, Solomon starts off by saying that he has a very bitter, very grim, very negative view of death. Why? Verse 20, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Can we think about dust for just a moment, please? Let's think about dust for just a moment. When you have a cloud of dust just sweeping across your face to where some of it gets into your mouth, right? What's your immediate reaction once you have dust in your mouth? Your immediate reaction is to gag, right? To cough it up, to spit it out. Right? You immediately just want to expel that dust out of your mouth to where you want nowhere near your mouth, right? What happens when dust settles on your body and stays there? You start to smell, Your body starts reeking to where you immediately just want to jump into the shower and just swipe off all that dust off of your body and get it away from your body as quick as possible. What happens when dust collects on your furniture, is on your windows, or is on your carpet? You immediately want to get rid of all traces of it. Why? So you can throw it out and get it away from you as quick as possible. Here's what Solomon is saying. That is what death turns your most precious people in your life into. Dust. That is what death turns your most precious beloved into, dust. That beloved who you can't stop kissing eventually is going to turn into something that your mouth wants to spit out. That person who you just want to embrace with your body forever and ever is eventually going to turn into something that's going to make your body stink. That person who you wish will always be next to you, never leave you, nor forsake you, eventually is going to turn into something that you just want to get rid of all traces of and throw out of your house like garbage. 
Death turns your most precious loved ones into dust, which tells us what? It tells us there is nothing more degrading, there is nothing more humiliating, nothing more evil than death. It degrades a human being who starts off as being utterly irreplaceable to someone that is utterly worthless in your mind to where they're good for nothing other than to be thrown out and to be walked out on the ground. You see, we live in a society that tries to minimize death. We try to act as if death is not a big deal. We try to overlook the horror and the pain that comes out of it. We say, no, it's a cycle of life, you know, the circle of life. We try to minimize the horror and evil of it. And yet in our heart of hearts, we know that that is absolutely dumb. Listen to what Tim Keller writes in his book on suffering. He says this, quote, Those of us who sense the wrongness of death in any form is correct. The rage at the dying of the light is our intuition that we were not meant for mortality, for the loss of love, or for the triumph of darkness. In order to help people face death and grief, we often tell people that death is a perfectly natural part of life. But that asks them to repress a very right and profound human intuition. That we are not meant to simply go to dust. And that love was meant to last. That means that ultimately, even a peaceful death at the age of 90 years old is not the way things were meant to be. End quote. Death is wrong. Death is evil. Death is to be avoided at all costs. That is what Solomon first thinks about death. That's his first view of death. And yet... Once again, look at what he says in the very next verse, in verse 2 of chapter 4. What does he say? And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. What is he saying here? I'll tell you what he's saying. He's saying the exact opposite of what he just said a moment ago about death, right? He's saying the complete contradiction to what he just said earlier. Solomon first thought that death was something to hate, something to avoid, something to run away from. And now what is he saying? He's saying it's actually good to be dead. Death is preferable. Death is something that you should run to. Death is something that you should embrace. Solomon is completely contradicting himself here to where he first says avoid death at all costs and now he says run to it. It's your escape. It's your refuge from presumably what must be in his mind, something utterly terrible, something so terrifying, something so evil, that in comparison, death would be better. Solomon, what did you just witness? What happened to you? What did you experience or what did you observe in this world to where you would go so far as to say that death is actually better than life? Verse 1, chapter 4. It reads this. Again, I saw all the oppression that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. One more image I want to show you. Can we have it up here? Another image? Oh, that's not good. (laughs) We don't have it? The image I was going to show you is Southeast Asia, where a young girl, about the age of my oldest daughter, five, embracing her younger brother, virtually dying on the streets of somewhere in Southeast Asia. Two beautiful children suffering and dying slowly by starvation and abuse, while people are walking by doing absolutely nothing about it. 
Solomon has observed unjust suffering of a categorical way that is so mind-numbing, so unsettling to his soul, that he actually starts reversing his initial convictions about death. Death goes from being this evil thing to avoid at all costs to where now he starts wondering, well, maybe in certain situations, in certain instances, maybe death would be better off for children like these. Children who are being chronically abused day and night by their abusers. Children who are slowly dying of starvation. Children who are having dysentery and dying of, of, of all these diseases that can be easily treated. See, that's what unjust suffering does. It makes you get disoriented about the horror of death to where it no longer looks horrific. And as a result, you start wondering, is death really as bad as the Bible says it is? Maybe it isn't. Maybe it's a refuge. Maybe it's an escape from all the cruel viciousness that we have in this world. And as a result, we start to wonder. We start to get dubious about death itself. We start to wonder, is death evil or is it a refuge? Is death humiliating or is it liberating? Is death something that maybe you should run to when suffering gets really, really bad? Or should death be avoided no matter how bad it gets because death is just flat out worse? Which is it, Solomon? He doesn't know. He has no idea. And guess what? So do you. You don't have any idea either. When you see unjust suffering at a certain categorical way, you get unsettled. And just like him, you do this. (sighs) Right? You sigh. You breathe out that breath of air, which in Hebrew means hebel, translated as vanity, vanity. All of life is vanity, and you just feel so lost. You feel so confused, and you don't know who to go to. You certainly don't feel ready to go to God, because he could be the one who's evil. What do you do? Is there hope? Scripture says, yes, there is. And this leads me to my final point. Jesus makes sense of everything. Fast forward with me a couple thousand years where we come to Jesus saying these words to his disciples recorded for us in John 15, starting in verse 18, we read, If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all of this to you. Listen, why? Because of me. For they have rejected the one who sent me. Here Jesus is telling his disciples, hey guys, when I'm gone, when I resurrect and I ascend to the Father and I leave you on earth, be ready. You are going to suffer. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to go through unjust suffering. Why? Verse 21, right in the middle, because of me. Because of me. Jesus is describing the world, this world that we live in, as a world that's completely hostile to him. A world that really, really hates him. And if you read what he said earlier in John 12, verse 31, it makes total sense why that's the case. Listen to what he said there. The time for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. This world, this reality that makes us sigh so much, hates Jesus because the one who rules this world, Satan, hates Jesus. And in fact, Satan hates Jesus so much that he not only directs his hatred against Jesus, but he directs his hatred against those who remind him of Jesus, namely other followers of Jesus, Christ-like followers of him. But let me ask you this. Are there any other group of people that remind Satan of Jesus to where he would therefore direct his hatred of Jesus towards them? 
Is there any other group besides Christians where Satan would target them because they remind him of Christ? Luke 18, starting at verse 15, we read, One day some parents brought their little children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But when the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering him. Then Jesus called for the children and said to the disciples, Let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Interesting. 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 Jesus says that when God looks upon little children, he says, these are the kinds that belong in the kingdom. When the father looks upon little children, he says, they remind me of my child. They remind me of Jesus. Jesus. This is supported, by the way, when you look at other parts of the gospel where Jesus says, only entrance into the kingdom is through him, right? If you're a father and you have a child or even a grown child, you sit in a restaurant, you see another child, and it reminds you of your child. You ever get that feeling before, Dad? You hear a cry, and you think, is that my baby? You turn around, it's not your baby. But for some reason, there seems to be this solidaric connection with a little child to your own. Little children, for some reason, evoke a sense of solidaric identity with the children that you bring into the world, the children that you love. Could that be an echo of how God views the little children in comparison to how he views Jesus? Scripture seems to say that it does. Jesus looks at Christians, right? Excuse me, Father, the God the Father looks at Christians, and it reminds him of his son. God looks at little children and reminds him of his son. And if that is true, that means Satan sees little children. He sees someone that reminds him of Jesus. Now, of course, this does not mean children are sinless, just like we would never say Christians are sinless. And yet, Scripture does say that when the Father looks at the people who are in Christ, they see, he sees the Son. Could it not be also that when he sees little ones, that he says, I see my son? Satan, knowing this, would therefore make total sense to target, like that beautiful little one right there, he would target those little ones as well. To where he would direct his hatred of Jesus, not only against Christians, but against those who are little, who say, belong to the kingdom of God. What does all this mean? It means this, all unjust suffering that happens in this world, whether it's directed against Christians or against little children or other people who just don't deserve it, suffer because of this world's hatred of Jesus. One more time. All unjust suffering that happens in this world, whether it's directed against Christians or little children or other people who don't deserve it, happens because of the world's hatred of Jesus. In other words, all unjust suffering that you witness in this world, they're all personal reenactments of Satan's hatred of Jesus that was seen vividly the most when he attacked Christ, leading Christ to the cross. That's what he is saying. And when you realize this, then and only then will you be able to avoid the confusion that so many of us have about God and about death when we witness unjust suffering in the world. Let me show you. First, let's talk about the confusion regarding God. You turn on the news and you read or you watch atrocious things and you hear about, God, why is this happening? Children being raped and murdered. People like going through cruel, unjust suffering. And then you remember John 15. Ah, yes, I remember. Unjust suffering happens in this world, not because God hates the world, but it's because the world hates God. But the good news of the gospel is 
That Jesus came once to save us from our sins, but he's coming again to save us from those who sin against us and also getting justice for us from those who unjustly victimize us. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. In other words, because of Jesus, he is going to make sure that in the big picture, eventually, good things will happen to those who were victimized. Bad things will happen to those who were the victimizers. That is what the gospel promises us. And because this is true, we will never see a God who seems so uncaring to where he sees man as if he is a beast to die in the wild. No, we see a God who is so loving that he himself was willing to be treated like a beast in the wild, a lamb to be slaughtered. Why? Because he loves us, yes. So that he could save us from our sins, yes. So that he could also get justice from us, for us, from those who unjustly sin against us to where we unjustly suffer. But what about the second confusion that we talked about? What about the confusion regarding death? How does Jesus help us unravel the confusion of whether or not death is worse or unjust suffering is worse? Which of the two should we consider to be worst of all and therefore be avoided at all costs? Should we avoid unjust suffering by therefore dying or should we avoid death and endure unjust suffering? How does Jesus unravel this for us? Go back to John 15. What did he tell his disciples? Did he promise them that they're going to die in eternal death? No. He did promise you are going to unjustly suffer. If Jesus came to save us from unjust suffering, then I must say that his salvation has failed. Because he says it right here, you will suffer. But what does scripture say? He came to save us not from unjust suffering. He came to save us from death itself. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 51. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret, says Paul. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment in the blink of an eye when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is a sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God he gave us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered the worst possible suffering of all, not to spare us from suffering in this life, but so that we would be spared from his standpoint, the most terrifying thing of all, death. Our death. Do you see? Listen, if Jesus loves us as much as Scripture says he does, he would clearly prioritize, which in his mind <clears throat> is the greater threat. Excuse me. <clears throat> the greater terror, right? He would prioritize what in his mind would be worse of the worst. And it's not unjust suffering. It is death. For those of you who are parents, <coughs> excuse me, You will understand this, especially when you have to take your children to get their yearly shots. Just a couple weeks ago, I had to take my son Judah to get three shots. Three. Man, I freak out just having to take him to the doctor for one shot. And he's like, Dr. Park, his, his doctor, like, yeah, I'm sorry, Pastor Pay. He apologized before we get there. Three shots today. And I look at my son. He looks at me, and he just knew. 
no. I didn't have to say anything. No. And he, for some reason, he covers his No. What was that going to do? But I take him to the doctor, and I know he's going to have to go through suffering. Suffering. And I want to spare from him, but I have a greater priority. I don't want him to die, right? And I hold him down, and he's screeching, No! Appa! It's really hard when they blood-curdling cry your name. Appa! Right? And I'm sweating profusely, right? The nurse is laughing at me. Well, actually, she's not laughing. If only. I'm holding down. My priority is clear. The greater priority is overcoming the threat of death, even if that might require a little unjust suffering at the time. He doesn't deserve to be in pain. He didn't do anything wrong. He doesn't need to be punished, and yet he has to go through it so that he can be spared from the greatest threat of all, death. Jesus went to great lengths Not to save us from unjust suffering. He went to great lengths to save us from death. Which clearly tells us that as far as he's concerned, there's no question which is worse. Death is worse than even the most terrifying unjust suffering in this life. Because the fact of the matter is, unjust, terrifying sufferings in this life, according to scripture, they are just symptoms. They are just shadows of the most terrifying experience of all. Death itself. That's what scripture says. And that's what Jesus came to spare us from by taking our place, dying that suffering death on the cross for our sins. Because at the cross, he suffered that ultimate terror on our behalf. Listen again, Tim Keller, he writes, Jesus was abandoned, denied, and betrayed by all the people he had poured his life into. And on the cross, he was forsaken even by his father. This final experience, ultimately unfathomable to us, means infinite cosmic agony beyond the knowledge of any of us on earth. For the ultimate suffering is the loss of love, and this was the loss of an eternal perfect love. There is nothing more difficult than the disruption and loss of family relationships. But here we see that God knows what it, what it is like to suffer. Not just because he sees it in a far greater clarity than we, but because he has personally suffered in the most severe way possible. The agony of loss by death. The separation from the beloved and the disruption of his own family, the trinity, by the immensity of his own wrath. Jesus' suffering on the cross should tell us with crystal clarity which is worse, unjust suffering or death. It is death. Unjust suffering is simply, again, just a sneak preview of what awaits for you in death if you don't have Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's what Scripture teaches. But if we trust in him as Lord and Savior, not only do we not have to fear death, but we will never make the mistake that so many have about death itself. Death is not a refuge. Death is not an escape from the most terrifying things that you could ever experience. No, death is the final destination, the ultimate suffering that accumulates through the terrifying sufferings you come on earth to experience. But you can be spared if Christ is Lord and Savior. And so here's my question, non-Christian. Do you trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior? Christian, do you still believe Jesus is Lord and Savior. Because if you do, it'll bring such clarity in such a confusing world that makes you sigh so much when it comes to unjust suffering and how it affects your view of God and of death. If you cling to the power of the cross and the clarity of that the cross gives you in light of the world, you will see the truth. God is good. 
death is bad, and he spared it all for us by being our Savior. If you hold on to that, that'll be one big reason to which you will not sigh anymore. The question is, are you going to hold on to it, and are you going to believe it? Let's pray. Father, we think more and more about what unjust suffering does to us, how it messes with our minds, how it alters our view of you, how it perverts the knowledge of God, how it minimizes the tragedy of death to the point where we even deny it. Lord, spare us from such confusion by having our eyes fixated on the cross, by fixating on the one who died on the cross for our sins. Father, many of us have witnessed things in this world that we wish we could have unseen. Many of us have gone through things in this world that we wish we had not gone through because of the fact that it has left us utterly confused and lost, especially in which as it pertains to you. Father, you are the anchor of our soul. You are our true north. But Lord, if we ever lose faith in that, how could we ever go on? How could we ever stop sighing? Lord, we thank you that you enabled us to do that by giving us your son, Jesus. For though we can never fully understand why evil exists, why certain things happen, the cross makes it crystal clear what what the main reason is not. It is not because you don't love us. It's not because you don't care. It's not because you are not powerful. Lord, that is enough for us. And so, Lord, help us, especially for those here among us who are really struggling with this reality of unjust suffering that we witness in the world. But Lord, we also take this time to pray for this world. We pray for those among us and those in this city and in this world who are being brutalized and victimized as if they are just but beasts. God, have mercy on them. Protect them by your grace and give them endurance so the time would come where they would see the one who is their hope. And Father, I pray that you will mobilize your church all over the world so that we can reach out to those who desperately need to hear the hope that they need to have, that Christ is the ruler of all and that Christ is their Savior. Father, would you help us to be a church that truly lives out the value of being outwardly compassionate so that when Satan looks upon us, he sees Christ, and though he attacks us, we can endure with hope and not sigh anymore. Would you help us to do that now, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now going to give the Lord his tithes and our offering. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give, but to our members, let's give to God his tithes and our offerings.